All God's people said, amen. amen. I'm going to try my best not to just break down and start crying at the very beginning of a message here, but um, that could have been one of the greatest moments of worship I've ever been in my life. Um, and, and I want to say this with all the sincerity and the heart that I can in this. There is an ongoing attack against men in this world. And there is a lie that is perpetuated by the enemy that there are no good godly men out there. This church is unbelievably blessed with godly men and dads and granddads. What an amazing, amazing morning. So happy Father's Day to all of the dads and granddads in this room. Um, we are grateful for your spiritual leadership within the home. We're grateful for your servant leadership within the church and the community. Uh, this is a church that is very blessed by men. I, I hope and I'm praying today that you will feel loved and you will feel encouraged and you will feel valued as a part of being in this worship service today and grateful to God for all the men in this church. So we begin this morning with a Bible story. And I know that's not my normal way of starting a message, but in this particular case, this is a story that sets up an idea that is very difficult for us to establish any other way. So the story itself is found over in Acts chapters 3 and 4. And in that story, here's what's happening. Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray. They get to the temple and they pass by a beggar, and this particular beggar would often sit at that same gate and he would ask money from people as they were walking through the temple gates. And whenever Peter and John walked through the temple gates, they asked them, or this guy asked them for money. And there's a three-word response that Peter gives. He simply says this, look at us. And for me, it's three words, but it's three funny words. If you don't necessarily see the humor right now, let me kind of reinterpret it in another way right here. These boys were in ministry. They were broke. And they're saying, do you have some money? And basically he's like, look at us. Does it look like we have money? And he's going to say that in just a moment. It'd it kind of be the equivalent of somebody coming and saying, Paul, I'd love if I could borrow your yacht next weekend. I would say, look at me. Does it look like I own a yacht? So Peter had a little bit more decorum than what I did because he actually tells them in chapter 3, verse number 6, he says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And here's what it says in verses 7 through 9. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Kind of make a mental note of that praising God part right there. The temple guards and the religious leaders were upset by what took place. They were upset because Peter and John were speaking the name of Jesus and upset because they were talking about the resurrected Savior. So they arrested them. They put them in jail. And the next day, Peter and John stand before this religious court, and they're asked one question in chapter 4, verse 7. By what power 
or in what name have you done this? Now, that's a strange question for me. Because if I heard that a crippled man all of a sudden began to walk, my first question would be, how? How did that happen? Their first question was, who? Whose name did you use? And Peter's response is found in verses 10 and 12. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Three different times he references the name of Jesus. When the actual event occurred back in chapter 3, verse 6, he very clearly identified the authority in that moment. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Now, right after that, the people were trying to figure out what was happening, and they asked some different questions, and Peter responded in verse number 16 by saying, on the basis of faith in his name, it is in the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Peter repeatedly goes back and he says, the healing, the power, the authority that you've just witnessed, it comes in the name of Jesus. So how does a healing moment, how does this entire focus of the name of Jesus, how does that connect back into our series, Jesus on Prayer? I want you to read on the screen, maybe even kind of write these references off to the side. Listen to what Jesus said, John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John chapter 15, verse 16, it says, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Go one more chapter. John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Jesus spoke of this incredible connection between our prayers and his name. And these are some huge promises. I'm, I mean huge promises. When he says, whatever you ask, or if you ask me anything, or if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. That is a huge promise. It's almost like the silver bullet of prayer. Like you could ask anything, just make sure it's in the name of Jesus, and it sounds like he's saying, I'll give it to you. Now hold on just a moment. So does that mean if I ask for $10 million in Jesus' name, that he's going to give it to me? Because if that's the case, I might have me a yacht by next weekend. If you're nice, I'll throw in a good word for you too. Let's go on the serious side. Does that mean if I ask for God to heal my friend who has cancer in the name of Jesus, that he's always obligated to heal on this side of eternity? Hmm. Okay, let's go on another side. Have you all ever noticed 
that in the book of Psalms, David prayed what was referred to as imprecatory prayers. That is, they were difficult prayers. Like he would say, God crushed the head of my enemy. Like rub his face in the dirt type of prayer. So let's just, what, what about, let's say some diabolical prayers. Let's say you've got some annoying person in your neighborhood. I don't have any of mine because a lot of my neighbors are right here. Okay, all right, so let's just say they're in your neighborhood and you're like, I don't like this dude, so I'm going to pray in Jesus' name that he moves him to Siberia. Is your neighbor going to wake up like next month in Siberia speaking Russian and saying, how in the world did I get here? What exactly does it mean when he says, pray anything in his name and he'll give it to you? See, this is one of those texts that we have to dig deeper. There's so much potential for abuse. There's so much potential for selfish desires and whims that if we're not careful, we can get caught up sometimes in a name-it-claim-it idea. That, that's not biblical. You're going to see this morning through the Word what it actually means when it comes to praying in His name. So we got a lot to cover this morning. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter number 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14, will be in verses 12 through 14. There's this incredible connection between prayer and Jesus' name. But it is not a promise to indulge every selfish desire, and for that matter, not even to indulge every good desire. You're going to see this morning, there's so much that is captured in that one thought. I'm speaking this morning on the subject of authoritative prayer. So let's read what it says, verses 12 and following. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are desperately in need of your Spirit to guide us into truth this morning. So God, may you clearly speak through your word in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So due to the great potential that we would find of misuse for a passage like this, we need to take time to really understand what it means to pray in Jesus' name. If you'll recognize at the end of most Christian prayers, somebody will close out their prayers by saying, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, why do we do that? What is the significance behind that? Is that just some formality that we go through, or what's the significance that is there? That leads us into our key truth for this morning. So look at this. That is, Jesus gives believers authority to ask for anything in accordance with his nature, the Father's will, and God's glory. Let me say that again. Jesus gives believers authority to ask for anything in accordance with his nature, the Father's will, and God's glory. Look at what it says once again over in verse number 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Stop there for just a moment. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about believing prayer? 
If you'll remember in that particular text, we emphasize the fact our belief, our faith is first in God and then in the answers that he gives. If we have faith first in him, if he chooses to answer in a way that we don't understand, our faith is not shaken because our faith is first in God. So he begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Now, in verse number 11, he spoke of believing him twice. Then verse number 12, he brings it up once. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do. Now, hold on just a moment. I don't have the best memory in the world, and I forget a lot of stuff I read in the Bible. But I'm pretty sure when I read the Gospels, it talks about Jesus healing person after person and casting demons out of person after person, and him performing miracles, things like turning water to wine and walking on water and, and calming a storm by his voice. It, it speaks of him raising the dead back to life. And Jesus says, there are going to be those who come after me. They're going to do greater works than these. How do you get greater than what Jesus did? Here's a way to help us understand that. Greater does not speak of greater in power because it's the same power. It's the power of God. In fact, if you were to look over in verse chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus even said, but the Father abiding in me does his work. In other words, as we abide in Christ, God does his work through us. It is the power of God that is being lived through in that moment. This seems to speak of greater in extent and greater in scope and greater in quantity. So, for example, Jesus never preached outside of the region of Palestine. And yet his disciples would reach the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Greater in scope. Uh, Jesus limited his outreach to the Gentiles. In fact, if you'll remember, he says, I came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But you'll also notice that his disciples, specifically one by the name of the apostle Paul, he was taking the gospel out to the Gentile world. It, it was larger and broader in scope. Uh, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, it was believed that there might have been a couple hundred true followers who really stuck with him. And yet on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches and 3,000 people are saved in a moment right there. It, it speaks of greater in scope and extent as well as in quantity. But we can also not divorce the promises of verses 12 through 14 from the context in the flow of what's actually happening within the chapter itself. So to keep in the flow, here's what that would look like. When our hearts are troubled, when we desire to know God, when we want to be a part of expanding God's kingdom, when we desire to live in a way that brings glory back to God, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Amen. That last statement is huge that the Father may be glorified. Amen. That's the peace that helps protect this promise from selfish desires. Because very easily in our prayer time, we can turn it so it's about us. It's about selfish desires. It's not about the Father's glory. We, we turn it around. So sometimes you have to ask this question even in your prayer time when you don't know what to pray for. You say, God, how would you be most glorified in this? And did you know, even in asking that, sometimes 
We don't know. We don't know whether or not God receives the most glory through intervention, whether or not God receives the most glory through helping give grace for people to walk through hard times. We don't know sometimes if God receives the most glory based upon the fact that somebody changes from the inside out. Like, we don't know in that certain moment, but what we like to do is we like to say, how did God work in that person's life because he's got to do the same in mine? That's where it's dangerous because sometimes what God is doing to bring glory to himself in one moment is different than what he's doing to bring greater glory to himself in this moment. Now, in this situation, this is also one that we got to be so careful about as believers because even in our prayers, things intended to bring glory to God, we can twist and turn inward to bring glory back to ourselves. And listen, pastors can be the worst at this. Let me explain. I'm a pastor. I feel like I can talk about pastors for a moment. If God gets a hold of somebody and they get saved after preaching a message, that pastor can walk away thinking, man, my message was so good, that person just got saved. If God chooses to bring growth numerically, spiritually, in depth of character in believers' lives under a pastor's ministry, easily that pastor sometimes can think, that's because of me. Oh, that is a dangerous trap to fall into. Read the story of Nebuchadnezzar back in the Old Testament about what it looks like when you try to steal the glory away from God. Just like Satan, if we're not careful, we can become glory stealers. We can turn it so it's about us. And it's not just pastors who struggle in this area. Many times it could be believers as a whole, they they get a promotion at work or they get a great job or they make a wonderful sale or they do something in order to bring honor and recognition and all of a sudden they get this idea of, man, I'm good. And they forget it's God who gave them that ability and God who placed those talents in their life and God's the one who gave them favor and God's the one who kept them alive when they made stupid decisions in their past. And it's God the one who has gone before them and God's the one who set up those encounters. And in that moment, sometimes we can think it's about us, but ultimately it's about him. Remember what I said, take note of the fact when that man was healed, he goes into the temple praising God, not Peter. We've got to be careful that we're not stepping into a position of stealing glory away from God. This last week I was studying in Matthew 5 about being salt and light. And I was, again, stunned by the fact when he references light, He says, live in such a way that people would see your good works, here it is, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. If people walk away saying, that's a great person, and they don't walk away saying, that's a great God, something just messed up in that moment. So here's an experiment. I encourage you, think in your mind about one of the greatest prayer warriors of your life. Might be a family member somebody that you've known in the church. It might even be somebody that you have admired their prayer life from a distance. There's some like Andrew Mueller or Andrew Murray or George Mueller that these are guys that their prayer life has encouraged believers around the world. 
Here's my experiment. I encourage you to find the person's name in your mind and then ask the question, how often did you see the person go back and give praise to God? Here's what you'll find. There is an incredible correlation between great prayer warriors and great praise givers. When God recognizes he can entrust a person with those answers to prayer because that person is going to say, it's God. God's the one who did it. It's amazing to watch the number of prayer requests and answers that begin to go into that person's life. So here's the statement again. Jesus gives believers authority to ask for anything in accordance with his nature, the Father's will, and God's glory. So what is the significance of praying in his name? Well, to ask in the name of Jesus means to represent that person, their, their nature, their character, even their very presence in that matter. To act in somebody's name means that you are acting as that person would act and with the authority that that person has. One of the greatest correlations that you find on this is a piece that we have in our current society called power of attorney. Uh, this is handled many times in legal matters and financial matters, and many times there is somebody that is acting on another person's behalf. I'll give you a great example in our life. Probably around 2006, 2007, I received this fantastic little letter from the IRS that I had been randomly chosen for an audit that year. And when the IRS says, I'm about to audit everything, like uh, from a perspective of somebody who just, they want to pay their taxes, they want to do things right, I'm like, did I miss something? Did I do something wrong? Well, I go to my CPA, and he said, Paul, this happens all the time. We prepared your taxes, not a problem. Here is a form. This is power of attorney. Sign this, and I'll stand in and represent you in that. He went in, represented me. 30 minutes later, calls back, says, everything is done, taken care of. First, all I can say is praise God for a good CPA. <laughs> the second thing is praise God for people who can stand in on our behalf, acting under the authority that we would have. So here's another one of those types of things. 2003, I was commissioned by the North American Mission Board as a missionary uh, coming out for church planting. And a part of that commissioning was that they had an opportunity twice a year send me wherever they wanted to send me in order to represent the North American Mission Board and to speak on church planting. So whenever I would go to a certain event, I was representing that group and I was operating under their authority as they sent me out. So here's how I would start almost every single message I shared with people at that time. I'd get up in front of a church and I would say, on behalf of the North American Mission Board, I want to thank you for your support of the cooperative program. If it were not for the generosity of churches like this, I would not be able to be planting a church in Las Vegas today. Thank you for what you've done. Here's what just happened. I was sent by them operating under their name and with their authority. I was to represent their interest in that moment of time. Take that idea back into this text. When you and I are praying these things in Jesus' name, it means that we are under his authority, representing his interest, his kingdom, and his agenda within that moment. So to ask in Jesus' name also means that we acknowledge our unworthiness to receive anything based on our own merits. When you come before God, you're not saying, God, would you answer this because I'm a good person? 
but rather you're saying, God, would you answer this because of the merit of Jesus Christ? Jesus gives believers authority to ask for anything in accordance with his nature, the Father's will, and God's glory. Scripture has a lot to say about those things we access in the name of Christ. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, but here's just a few pieces for your notes. That is, we have access in the name of Jesus to salvation, Acts chapter 2. Healing, Acts chapter 3. Power, Philippians chapter 2. Authority over demons. Actually, answered prayer, John 14. And then authority over demons, Luke chapter 10. Protection, John chapter 17. Comfort over in Isaiah 9. Help in times of trouble, Psalm 20. Safety, Proverbs 18. Watch this. Persecution, 1 Peter 4. Don't you love the fact that Jesus shares the hard and the easy, the good and the difficult? If you're talking about operating under Christ's name, do not be surprised when people treat you the same way they treated him. Next one is sanctification and justification. Now let me finish with an important question. Can anyone use the name of Jesus in this way? No. One of your greatest references for this is Acts 19. It's the story of Jewish exorcists. They were referred to as the seven sons of Sceva that are attempting to cast out demons or evil spirits, but they're trying to do it in the name of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. So instead, here's what they said to this evil spirit. They said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the evil spirit answered back and said, I recognize Jesus. I know Paul, but who are you? And that evil spirit came out and put something on them Ajax couldn't take off. They toted a whooping to the house after that. Okay, here's the, the thing. You can't just flippantly throw the name of Jesus around. This is one that comes from the fact you're under his authority. You're in relationship with him. Uh, We're going to get into this in just a moment about bearing his name and how his name is used. But just for just a moment here before we go past that, all I can say is when the demons know you by name and mention you in the same breath with Jesus, you've been living on mission. Hey, mm, I'm going to leave that alone. (laughs) That's wisdom in this moment right now. Y'all don't encourage me to say something I don't get in trouble with. Okay, to effectively use his name, we must first bear his name. And there's three ways that people can operate with the name of Christ or they can do things. And that is, first, people reject his name. To to reject Christ's name is to reject Christ's person because a a, a person's name, specifically in Scripture, represented all of who that person was, their character, their nature, their very presence. So the end result of those who reject the name of Jesus is to spend eternity separated from his presence. Second is people use his name. Do you know, sometimes I don't even think people know that they're using his name. They wouldn't say they're using his name. Here's the best way I know how to pull this idea out. When I was growing up, 
there would be certain sports that we would play in our neighborhood. And so we might play football, we might play basketball, whatever it was. When you're a little dude and you're running around, you would go out and whatever your favorite player was in that sport, you wanted to be called by that name. So if I was playing football, I wanted to be Roger Starbuck, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Amen. Go Cowboys. So anyway, if I was playing basketball, you're going to laugh at this. If I was playing basketball, I wanted to be called Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, center for the Lakers back at the time. Now, here's the thing. I was using the name. We, we would put on their jerseys. We would try to move like they moved. We, we would try to operate like they did. But here's the thing. I couldn't throw a football any better by calling myself Roger Starbuck. I definitely couldn't dunk like what Kareem could do because I used the name. I simply used the name, but it wasn't the fact of it was that person. Here it is. When you're talking about the name of Christ, they can reject the name, they can use the name. But here's the key. People bear his name. To bear his name means you've repented of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. To bear someone's name comes through three primary means, by birth, by marriage, and by adoption. Did you know the moment you entered relationship with God through Jesus Christ, all three of those just connected together? That is, to bear somebody's name by birth means that their blood is flowing through your veins. Their DNA is in your body. As believers, we have been born again in Christ. We've been birthed into the family of God. It's because of the blood of Christ that we're there. We just sang about the fact that his blood courses through our veins. Here's another one. To bear somebody's name in marriage means that you've entered covenant relationship where two have now become one. It's no longer my life and your life, it's our life. At salvation, we entered covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Two became one. We are now a part of the bride of Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives through me. Then to bear somebody's name through adoption means that someone has entered into a legally binding agreement to make you a part of their family. It is, you now have access to inheritance by virtue of adoption you didn't have before. Remember, we've been studying in, in Galatians about the fact that we have been purchased from the slave market of sin. That we have a, he has legally purchased us by Christ. A part of that is that we have now been adopted into the family of God and we have access to all things because of that entrance into his family. All three of those now line up as a child of God. You're birthed into the family of God. You, you're adopted into the family of God. You've entered this covenant relationship in marriage because of that. We bear his name. Now watch this. Now that the background is in place, I want to go back over and read the first part that we started with over in Acts 3 and 4. The religious crowd asked Peter and John, by what power or in what name have you done this? They knew that they had just witnessed something that is not anything that would happen through normal human powers. They recognized there was a higher authority that was at play here that they didn't recognize. And here's what Peter said. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, oh, watch this, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Watch, watch what he does. He's talking about healing, but notice how quickly he moves. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Here's what Peter did. He made a beeline back to the gospel. He said, it's all about Jesus. It's the one that you crucified. It's the one that God raised from the dead. It's by his name that this individual has been healed. Peter did not take that moment to direct attention back to himself. He said, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He acted in a way that represented Christ's nature because Jesus is a healer. In accordance with the Father's will. We know it was the Father's will because of how he answered the prayer. And in a way that brought glory to God. That is, this man turned away praising God, not the apostles. Jesus gives believers authority to ask for anything in accordance with his nature. The Father's will and God's glory. So how do we live that truth? These are just a few ideas. Remember who you are in Christ. It is a part of your identity in Christ. Recognize the authority that God has given you as a child of God. In each situation, submit it back to God. Seek his will in that. Ask God how he can be most glorified through your life, through your obedience in that moment. We live in that way. It takes us deeper into the intentions of prayer. So what else do we learn about prayer from this? Well, here's some great news. Did you know you don't have to know God's will in every situation to submit to God's will in every situation? Part of that is just simply trusting God. Part of it's being honest with God in that place. One of the dangerous things that we can do as believers is unless... You see it in the word, clearly in the word, in context, in the word. One of the most dangerous things you can do is say, God's will is this, and tack God's name onto the other side of one of our desires. Because often God will leave you sitting there with that one desire to show you, you're not going to manipulate me to do what you desire for me to do if it's not my will, if it's not my plan, if it's not my way. So what else do we learn about prayer? It all comes back to relationship again. I've mentioned it multiple times. Everything God desires to do in and through your life, including strengthening your prayer life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of our relationship with him. Everything. This is just one more example of that today. So do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life that you have repented of your sin by placing faith totally, completely in Jesus Christ? If you've never done that and you have a desire for what that is about and, and to know that you are in right standing with God, in just a moment, our pastors and some of their wives will be at the front. I want to encourage you. Come and talk to one of those pastors. Talk to one of those pastors' wives. Uh, talk to one of the counselors that will be standing off to the side. We want to help you walk through that process and help you understand what it looks like to have a right relationship with God. It might be others that are in the room right now. 
that you've recognized even in this morning's message that maybe you've been using his name, tacking his name maybe to the end of prayers that are more selfish in nature. My question is, how would God challenge you right now to change that? What would it look like tomorrow to wake up and say, God, may my prayer life be different today because I'm under your authority. Some of you today, you might be going through the fire and you're just saying, I just need somebody to pray for me. Would you allow us to do that? Would you allow us to serve you in that way and to pray with you and to pray for you? There might be people today in the room that you've been looking for a church home. You've been looking for community. You've been looking for a place where you can use the gifts that God has placed in your life and that you can join with other believers in biblical community. I want to encourage you today on that. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to talk with you about that right here at Sherwood. The thing I try to go back to every single week is however the Spirit of God is leading you, please obey him. I don't ever want to get to the end of the service and feel like somehow we have tried to manufacture a movement of God. If you have to manufacture it, it's not him. And if you manufacture it, you have to keep it going. I don't need that kind of pressure in my life. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to focus on God. We're going to preach his word, and we're going to trust that the spirit of God can move in a person's life and prompt them as to how they need to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today, Lord, that you would allow hearts and minds to be pulled to you, God, in a huge way. Lord, that we, we recognize there's different steps of obedience for every single person in this room. And sometimes one person's step of obedience uh, might be in an area of salvation. Another person, it might be in the area of submitting a certain part of their life before you. And others, it might be recognizing what you've been challenging them with in prayer, but they've not wanted to listen to. God, there's so many different ways that you're so personal in how it is that you bring a message about and make it applicable to each person who is hearing. So God, we're praying today that you would allow there to be spiritual movement that is led by you, that is prompted by you, that the transformation happens completely because of you. God, we need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, we'll thank you for what you do at this time. And God, we'll be grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing? The altar is open at this time.